your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 7, so that's where we're going to be, verse 35. Um, I, I love this church. Um, I love this church for multiple reasons. One is uh, we've actually gotten to be around since the very beginning and just watch all that God has done through uh, this church and what the highs and the lows and all that kind of stuff. So I always feel super honored uh, to be a part or to be invited to come speak, but also just to, to be a part uh, of the staff, a part of the team. And, you know, the work that we do, you know, Phoenix One, uh, the, we exist to, to unify the local church uh, through care and connection, which means this, is that we really, really want to change, help change the narrative around what people think about the local church. Uh, we really, I don't know about you, but I'm a little tired of like staff burnout. I'm tired of like uh, affairs. I'm tired of like, you know, just really tragic stories that continue to happen uh, and it hit the news. And so we're doing everything we can to try to care for staff of churches, care for pastors, care for spouses, uh, because we believe that when we come together as one in that way, that people people will see Jesus. And so I don't know about you, but I desperately, desperately want to be a city on a hill for the world to see the love of Jesus Christ. Anybody else with me? And so we are, we're working really, really hard to try to do that to the best of our ability and um, been so excited to work alongside of this lo local church and be invited uh, by them to try to care to the best of our ability. Uh, like AC said a few weeks back, um, they invited us to, to host a retreat, to do a retreat for the staff because some cool things are happening here at this church. You know that? Like you've on-ramped all this new staff, which is so awesome. And you guys are definitely benefiting as a local church from having awesome staff. Uh, but also... God is calling you into some new adventures moving forward, um, some new things that I know you guys are talking about. And so the leadership came and sat with us and said, listen, we want to get healthy. We want to get whole. We really want to come together as one, as a team. We want to invite our spouses. And would you guys just kind of care for us? And so that's what we did. We were up in Flagstaff and we spent some time together growing deeper. And I am, and I mean this sincerely. I'm not just saying this because they've invited me to speak. I'm so proud of your team. I get to meet with pastors and staff who are just really hurting all over the valley every single day. And I have been so proud of this team stepping in and leaning in and figuring out and growing in their understanding of who Jesus is, who they are, and who they are together as one. And it's been so helpful. But I want to give you a little behind the scenes peek that maybe you don't uh, get to see. I caught this moment up at the retreat and it was like a really special moment for us and our team. So I want you to just kind of check this out. this beautiful moment where we came together and, and they just let go and just worshiped. And I know a lot of times, maybe you don't get to see that part of them. They're busy doing, you know, all the things they've been called to do is what it, you know, I don't know if you know this, it's not easy to be a church staff or a, or a pastor. It's just not right. Especially right now, it's not easy. And to watch them just beg God to invade their space uh, was so encouraging. And so I want you to see that uh, because I, that's who they are. 
And you should be really proud of your team. You should really be proud of your pastors, of your staff. They are really sacrificing to really move forward what God has called them to do. So I just want you to know, I know some of you in this room uh, maybe have a lot of church hurt, maybe a little cynical about the local church. And I want you to know I get that. Like I really completely get that. But I want to reassure you as somebody who spends a lot of time with churches, a lot of time with staff, this is a really, really great team that are seeking God into the best. They are not perfect. Promise you they're not perfect, okay? Uh, they will disappoint you at times. But here's what I want you to know. I really, really feel that their hearts are really about following Jesus and following this mission that he's called them to. And so you should be really proud of your ta staff and really excited to be a part of this local church. I have been, again, I can't say enough, like so proud uh, to be a part of their lives and theirs and mine. And I really believe that you guys are moving forward what God has called you to do. So super excited. All right. Um, let me transition us. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I, I, I was born into a Christian family. How many of you were born into a Christian home? Like your kind of your whole life, just raise your hand, right? So I would say like I came out of the womb singing Amazing Grace. Like I feel like my mom said that as she was birthing me into existence. Um, like it was that kind of thing. I got saved when I was four, got baptized in some weird dirty lake uh, right quickly after, you know, I just followed the protocol. It was like you do this and then you do this and then you do this. Started reading my Bible every night, started praying, went to a Christian school my whole, you know, whole life. And I was involved in anything that involved a fish or a cross. You know, it's like I went on mission trips. I was leading Bible studies. I was, you know, doing worship. Uh, we did prison ministry. We went to the, the Capitol and like did the prayer breakfast. I mean, I was picketing. I was doing whatever. We would do door-to-door -door evangelism. I like knock on somebody's door and go, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Right? Like this, it, I was bought in. This is what we did. I followed uh, the protocol all the way through. In fact, my sophomore and junior year, this is a real thing. At our Christian school, I won best Christian in the school. I have two plaques. I kept them because I, I, people just say that's not real. They called them the Conqueror's Award, but everybody knew what it was in the school. Do you know what that does to a young Christian? You like walk in the school like a Christian celebrity, like I got a plaque that says I'm awesome, right? And so I grew up in that, went to Moody Bible Institute. I don't know if you know this, that's where Jesus went. And so I uh, went to Moody Bible Institute. I've been a pastor for 25 years. You know, I led people around the world to trips all over the place. You know, I, I, I started nonprofits to build wells in India and to help care for local church staff. Like, like I'm all in, right? I'm all in. So uh, the last four years, I've been going to counseling, getting some help. Um, and here's what I find really interesting. The thing I work with my counselor the most today is this. I want to experience the grace of God. Why is it that somebody who has committed his life to all the good just struggles to experience the grace of God. Why? Because goodness has become my God, had become my God. And all these years, it's like, man, I wanna sense and feel the presence of God. I wanna sense his grace and his mercy, but because I've been saying to God, look at me, God, look at me. See how good I am? See how great I am? See all these good things I'm doing? that I'm not necessarily getting to, so I'm sitting in my with my counselor working through to experience what it is to be known, to know God and to be known by God and to experience his grace and his mercy. This is what we are being taught, will be taught today 
in, in Luke chapter 7. Uh, you've been in the Old Testament, and you did Noah, and, and, and you did David, right? And, and we're in this series, right? Right here, broken people, big God. And the Old Testament is, is showing you these who God is and these people that are impacted. And But I, I heard this comedian once said that the Old Testament is the bad Bible, and the New Testament is the good Bible, right? Because we have this perspective of God, like God's angry and like disappointed in the New Old Testament. In the New Testament, he shows up and everything's great. And that's not true. Actually, what happens in the New Testament is the fulfillment of who God actually is in the person of Jesus. He comes to us, incarnates. Eugene Peterson in his translation of John 1 says, he moved into the neighborhood, but he's always moved into the neighborhood. Well, he, he had a tabernacle to say, I'm in your midst. I'm not far away, I'm near. But what we find in the New Testament is this transition where Jesus walks among us. God walks among us. And the New Testament writers are like, we just wanna tell you about this. We wanna tell you the stories about what God did amongst his humanity. We wanna show you how Jesus loved and how Jesus cared. And each one of these stories are inviting us into something special. And, and a matter of fact, if you read the gospels, what you'll find is a very, very, very similar template. What happens when Jesus shows up? What happens when he moves among the people? He's going to start turning what we believe is true upside down and showing us what who he is and what he's about. And that's what's happening in this story. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in verse uh, 36. So Luke 7 verse 36, and it says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table, which was a very customary way to sit at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, that, that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and, and the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with an ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, uh, I have something to say to you. And, and he answered, say it, teacher. Well, a, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and, and the other 50. And, and when they could not pay, he... he, he canceled uh, the debt of both of them. Now, which of them uh, will love him more? Well, Simon answered this, uh, uh, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, this is important. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? You know, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet and she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. And everybody said, amen. Uh, This story you will see repeated all throughout the gospels. Different people, different situations, but it's set up culturally in this way. There is a bad person, a sinner. There is a perceived good person, the religious, and then there's Jesus. And as the people are listening to the story being retold, or even those who were there, they're they're expecting that the good person would do a certain good person, that the person that you would expect to be the good person, actually, Jesus is gonna try to help us understand something completely different. This story throughout the gospel is repeated over and over. Woman at the well, repeated there. Jesus and the demoniac, repeated there. Over and over, this story is being told over and over. What we perceive as the good person, who we perceive as the bad person, and what Jesus does to change all of that. And what we have right off the bat is this Pharisee. Pharisees are known as the separate ones. Uh, This happened uh, during the intertestamental period, which is the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And and what happens is Israelites are going, the Jews are being constantly in captivity. These people kind of rise up to keep the Israelites pure and true, to abide by the 613 laws, the immensely complex sacrificial system. These are the ones that are separated. They're kind of going like, we need to be different than the cultures that are trying to influence us, except that they in themselves become so pious that they separate themselves from the very people they're supposed to be cared for. This is this Pharisee. His name is Simon. And what he does is really interesting. He invites Jesus to his home. He invites Jesus into his home, but he doesn't really let him in, if that makes sense. Come into my home, but I don't really let you in. And we we have some context for that. Um, You know, at church or whatever you're with, and some people walk up that you don't really like or really don't know, and they're like, hey, we should get lunch sometime. And you're like, yeah, that would be really cool. And then your your spouse shows up or whatever, and they're they're like, yeah, we should do it today. And your other spouse is like, why aren't you doing that? We didn't even talk about it, right? And so they end up coming over, and you're like, you don't clean the house because you're like, I don't really know them and I hope they get out kind of quick. You know, you get pizza. By the way, fun fact. um, If somebody asks you over for lunch or dinner and has Little Caesar pizza, they don't want you there. Okay. They are trying to get you out of their home as fast as they can. Now, if they barbecue, Are they smoke? They're hoping for a second date, okay? They're hoping that you come back, right? They're trying to show off a little bit. They want you to stick around and enjoy it. But if they give you little Caesars, they're trying to transition you out of their home as fast as they can, okay? Just fun fact. I just thought I'd hand that out there. So this is a kind, this Pharisee is offering Jesus little Caesars, right? He's trying to get him out as quick as he can. In fact, he's pretty cynical. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to say, oh, let's see if you're really a rabbi or a prophet. Let's see if you are who you say you are, and it's indicative in the way he, in what he doesn't do. Like, Jesus exposes this in him in the last part of the passage. Jesus is like, you didn't even follow the customary things of hospitality. He didn't even treat me like a guest. I mean, in the East, if you know anything about the East, hospitality is the highest. I mean, back in this day, this is interesting. If you had somebody stay in your home, they would actually sleep like in your master bedroom in the bed with you. 
That was hospitality. I don't know, is any of this is going on in the West? I don't think so. But that was like the highest level of like, hang out with me and my wife, right? Like, we'd be like, no, don't do that. Don't do that, right? But that was the way how they saw hospitality. It was like the highest level of hospitality. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, like, you don't want me here, really. He didn't, he didn't wash my feet. He, he didn't k- greet me with a kiss to like welcome me. He didn't anoint me to be like, you are honored in this place. You just kind of want me here, but you really, really don't want me here. And here's what I find so interesting. I find that to be very true uh, of many Christians. You know, sometimes I sit in church because I've been a part of this whole system for a while, and I go, what are we all doing here? You ever ask that question, what are you doing here? Why do we show up every Sunday and do this? And sometimes I look around, and I'm like, is this just like a, is this like, just like a theater and we're like doing, putting on a Christian performance every Sunday that we kind of just show up, do our thing. Maybe it's guilt, maybe it's shame. Maybe I, fe- maybe I fear like if I don't show up to church, then God's gonna be like shaking his finger at me. Like, what is, why are we here? What are we doing? And I have to sit back and go, man, I feel like there's a lot of hypocritical tendencies here where we go like, God, I want you, but I don't know if I really want you. I always say, if you wanna see where people are in their maturity with Christ in a local church, just start taking stuff away. Like all of a sudden, you know, next week you guys are doing a barbecue and you're doing a family Sunday. All of a sudden, you know, Tim gets up and goes, hey, uh, we love you all. Hey, family Sunday is gonna be every Sunday. We're gonna have the kids just, we're canceling kids ministry and they're gonna be in here. And you're watch your church shrink, right? Because you're like, you can't take stuff away from us. Like we have a certain way we wanna do things. And it starts to expose us a little bit. COVID did that, right? All of a sudden, people who are all about churches, huge churches, now just, people just stop going back to church. Why? Well, because it's not what I wanted it to be. It didn't become what, and so why, what are we doing here? We've invited him into our home, but we don't really want him here. We're just kind of going through the routine. This is what this fair is. He's just going through the routine. Uh, it's like a standoff spirituality. Like, it looks like this, like, oh, I want you, but on my terms, in my way. Like, could go away, but come near. This is the way a lot of us are approaching it, and, and it's crushing us, actually. And this is how the Pharisee, Pharisee has Jesus in his house, but doesn't really want Jesus in his home, if that makes sense. And, and he can't see his own sin. He can't see his own depravity. He can only see the woman's depravity, only see her sin. And because he can't see Jesus, he can't see his sin. And because he can't see his sin, he can't see himself. And because he can't see Jesus, can't see his sin, can't see himself, he's definitely not gonna see this woman, which is the most exposing thing that Jesus brings to him. He says, do you see her? Do you see this woman? Do you see how she loves me? Do you see how she's repenting? to see how she is devoted to me. Can you see that? Because Jesus is like, I see that. I see that in her. I see her devotion. I see her love. I see her care. And you don't because you don't see me and you don't see your own sin and you don't see yourself and you don't see her. And I think that's so true. And this is like really a convicting thing. I think it's so true of so many Christians because they're just going through the charade that is what we do on Sundays and in our lives. And when things are great, we glorify him. And when things are bad, we curse him. 
And he's inviting us into something so new. And this is what this woman is trying to help us see. Because the Pharisee doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. You know, I, I told you I was in, I've been in counseling now for about four years. And about eight months into that journey, I had like an aha moment where I kind of like woke up. Like there, there's a story of the Good Samaritan, or, or uh, there's a story of the, the prodigal son and, and he's in the pasture, and it says in, in, the, in, in the passage, and he came to his senses. And this was the moment where he went, oh my gosh, and it was the transition for him back home. I had a very similar thing. And I had really realized all the pain I had caused my wife, all the pain I had caused my kids. I've got three kids. All the pain that the staff that I've led, volunteers, friends, I, I realized I, would, uh, I didn't want to, but I was using them. But I came to my senses, and when I did, I literally started just weeping. And what the byproduct of that was this. I started repenting. I started going around to all these people going, I'm so sorry. If I've hurt you, I'm so sorry. If I've offended you, I'm so sorry. I got Why? Because I saw my sin, and it caused me to repent. I saw the goodness of God. I saw his holiness and I saw my depravity, and I saw that it hurt people, and so I wanted to, this is the woman. This is the woman. She knows who she is. She knows she's a prostitute. She knows that she's a sinner, and she knows that she needs Jesus. She knows it. She is aware of her sin and she is aware that she needs salvation. Think how dramatic this story is being told or, or dramatic it is for those hearing this story as it's being told. You're in a home of a Pharisee, a separated one, and a prostitute comes into the home unannounced and starts weeping on the feet of your guest. She does not care about social norms. She does not care how inconvenient, she just wants Jesus. She is so overwhelmed by her depravity that she goes, I don't care, I just need saving. I need forgiveness of my sins. And when she approaches Jesus's feet, she starts weeping. She really wanted to anoint first, but she starts weeping. Why? Because she sees her sin and she sees his holiness and it's tearing her apart. And so she starts wiping his feet with her hair. As she puts her hair down, there is nothing more scandalous for a woman to do in the presence of a man. What she was saying as she put down her hair is knowing the judgment. They were going to look at her and say, there's a whore. That's what whores do. They put their hair down. She didn't care. Why? Because she was in the presence of Jesus. She just wanted him and what I find so interesting is that Christians and people, they hate talking about sin. We need to talk about it. This woman knew she was sinful, but here's the really interesting thing. We worry and we care about talking about sin and we don't want to because it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus is not afraid to talk about sin. Jesus is not afraid to be in the presence of sin. The whole narrative, this woman is at his feet 
as he says to Simon, as he's walking through this dialogue, she is weeping on his feet, wiping his, her feet, his feet with her hair. He's not telling her to go away. He's not telling her she's inconvenient. Hey, let's schedule an appointment to do this. No, he is present with her in her depravity, in her sin. He is not offended by that. When you come to him sinful, broken, and you weep and you grieve, he's not offended by that, which means if you're in this room and you see your sin, and you seek Jesus, you are in his presence and he is not offended by you. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary, and come rest at my feet, come weep, come grieve, come anoint, come be whole. He doesn't push her away. Think how awkward that must have been for Jesus. He does not care. The woman doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care. Guess who cares? The pious. The people who perceive that they're good, that their goodness is what defines them. Isaiah, Isaiah is saying this in Isaiah 64, 6, trying to help us understand this. We all have become like the one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Menstrual rags actually translated. We all fade away like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. What Isaiah is trying to say is, your goodness, there is no such thing. Your good deeds, he's not manipulated by your good deeds. He just wants you. He just wants you broken. He just wants you lamenting at the reality of your sin. But he just wants you, all of you, so many of us are not like this woman. We're trying so hard to prove to God that we're a somebody because we show up at church and we tithe and we give and we read our Bibles and pray. How's that working for you? It's gonna fold in on itself because he just wants you. He doesn't need you to prove anything. He's paid the cost. He loves you and he sees you. He just wants you to see him so you can see you, so you can see other people. This is what he's inviting us into. The woman needs help. And Jesus is there to give her help. And what does she do? She lavishes, lavishes love on Jesus. And she welcomes him into her home. Like, I couldn't get this image out of my head. The Pharisee invites Jesus into his home but doesn't really want him in his home. The prostitute comes in unannounced but is at home with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This is what he's inviting us all into. But if we're not careful because we have this standoff spirituality where we go, I want you, but I want it on my terms and my way. And this right here is look at all my good deeds. Look at all the good stuff. You know when my son got diagnosed with leukemia, I was angry at God. I was angry. You know why? Because that wasn't the plan. The plan was I do a bunch of good stuff and you keep my family safe. That was the plan. And God says, it wasn't the plan. When did you ever think you were good? Only God is good. 
And this is what the story is drawing out for us. We have a dichotomy in our brain. We have been programmed to think this. And the same is true of this time. There are good people and there are bad people. And the gospel says, no, none are righteous. No, not one. The gospel resets that whole thing for us, that whole thinking. It says this, only God is good. And those who come to him and understand that they're not good, but he is good, understand grace and mercy that covers a multitude of sin. Here's the thing. Salvation is not about bad people becoming good. No, it's about bad people finally coming to understand that God is good. That's it. That's the gospel. You don't get to earn this thing. It's not because of anything you've done. It is a free gift from God. And why is the gospel good? The gospel is good because God is good, period. Otherwise, he's, a, he, he, he's like a mafia member, a big guy in the mafia where, where he can coerce you to do whatever he wants to do. And if you obey him, then you're good. If you're not, he crushes you. Only God is good. And he is good even when you're sinful. But when you finally come to a place and go, I am sinful, I need saving, is when you experience good news. Listen to this last line that Jesus says to her. Your faith, listen, your faith, your faith in what? Her faith in Jesus as the propitiation for her sins. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know what the church needs today is a peace that passes all understanding, a peace in who is actually doing the saving, a peace with who's actually in control. Because I promise you, it's not in Washington, D.C., and it's not on some YouTube channel, and it's not in some news outlet. It's in Jesus and we have become distracted. We have become distracted and he's inviting us. This woman is inviting us to singularly focus all our attention on Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, that he will make all things new. Him, why? Because he's good and he loves you and he sees you and he knows you. He just wants you to know him. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your sin, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. This is what this beautiful woman models for us. And this is what flips the story on its side because Jesus is the hero. She gets to benefit from that. And those, like the rich young ruler who cannot see that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, they walk away. They walk away. I was at a, a GCU soccer game in September. And um, I never, I'd never been to a GCU soccer game. I don't know if anyone else has been to a GCU soccer game. But actually, it was pretty cool, right? Um, the, the thing that wasn't cool, it was in September. And so that was not so cool. It was super hot. <laughs> but really cool. Apparently, GCU has a great soccer team. I didn't know that. Uh, but they're pretty good. And I guess they were having a good year. So I'm sitting, only game I've ever gone to, uh, only soccer game I've ever really gone to. Um, so we're sitting in the stands. Some friends of ours invited us. And they're huge soccer people. And so we're sitting there, have a great time. GCU's killing it. Honestly, like the goalie, like is crushing it. Like the game of his life, he's like jumping, like blocking balls. So uh, GCU's up two one, 
They're up 2-1 with like 40 seconds to go. They, they, the opposite team is running down the field. They shoot a shot. The goalie does this dive and like punches it. The ball comes back out. They clear it. And then it comes back towards the goal. And all you see is the goalie running towards the ball, a player running for the ball, and the goalie punches the ball out. And everyone in the crowd starts cheering. So it's this, wow, they're going to do it. They're going to win the game. And then all of a sudden, the entire stadium starts to go quiet because the players are on the field and they're weeping. They're like crying. And we're like, what, what is happening right now? And you can hear them weeping on the field. The whole stadium goes completely quiet. The goalie is on the ground completely out, completely gone. And all the, for 20 minutes, the entire stadium is quiet. The, his mother runs down to the field. You can hear her crying. The team members are gathered up and they're praying. So you're in the, if you're in the stands, you're like, is this kid dead? Like, what is, what is happening right now? What is going on? And then the natural next thought is, where is the, what? Where's the ambulance? Like, somebody has to do something for this kid. And, like, nothing. Like, for 20 minutes, everyone is, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Complete silence. Everyone in the crowd is thinking the exact same thing. Where is help? Where is help? Help has to come. This kid, so you have team members in like circling around the, the, this player and they're like, he's not moving. And so you don't know what's going on if you're in the stands, but you know he needs help. So all of a sudden, about 20 minutes later, you know, we hear the, 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 the uh, whatever, the ambulance starts pulling up. And so this player's over here. Ambulance is on the other side of the field. So they park the ambulance thing and they start walking on the field. And they're just casually walking on the field. And all of us are feeling the same thing, but it took a brave guy. And this guy is watching these people walk on the field. We have been in absolute anguish because we can't do anything and we know something needs to change. And so as they're walking on the field, told the player, this guy, probably 100 yards from me, goes, run! You need to run. You need to run. He is, help him. Here's what he was saying. Grace. He needs your grace. He needs your mercy. You can't walk. You gotta run. Run to that person who is dying or hurting or something. Go. But here's what we typically don't do. We typically don't see ourselves as the player in the field. We see ourselves as the person in the stands. We are the person on the field. And Jesus came to us, not because of anything that we have done, but because he is good. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it. He came to us because he loves us and he did not delay. He ran to us in his grace, in his mercy, and he laid down his life and he extended his arms and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're in a really bad spot, but I'm going to stand in their place and in resurrection power, make all that was wrong right because I'm good. I'm good. This is the gospel. This is the stories that are in this book that are constantly telling you and me, this is not about us. This is about Jesus. 
and the work he's doing to redeem all of humanity back to himself. But we do have a responsibility as a church. We need to stop trying to be good. We need to be broken. Our world needs to see a church that's broken and depending on Jesus. We need to be that kid on the field that says, I need saving, and I was saved. And just so you know, that kid, he made it. Worst concussion of sports of all time, the doctor said. Because somebody interviewed and they rescued him. We're in the same place. And what Jesus would say is this, just come. This woman, she just comes to Jesus. She repents. And he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is what it is to be a believer. This is what it is to be a part of a local church. This Phoenix Bible Church, local church. This is our story. This is what we're being invited into. Go boldly, go boldly to the throne room of God and go boldly into this world, carrying that truth on your lips. So today, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're like me, that you're struggling with your goodness because you did all the right things and you need to connect You really need to connect with his grace and mercy and see your depravity come to Jesus. Some of you feel the weight of your sin, of the decisions that you've made, and you keep telling yourself that you're not good enough and someday you'll arrive. Come to Jesus. He will make you whole. And as we do that, we now enter out of the exit out of these doors and celebrate our king for he is good and only he is good. And everybody said, amen. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you saw us in our depravity. You saw this woman in her sin and you did not reject her, but you met her right where she's at and you met us right where we're at. God, we celebrate you today. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. Spirit, we are so thankful that you convict us and open our eyes to who you are. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And Phoenix Bible Church said, amen.